Good morning, church. Such an honor to be with you. I'm going to open with prayer. Vicki Covington's parents, Jean and Yolanda Collings, are in bad health. And then um, Sally McConnell is headed overseas with her daughter uh, for a time for for a mission trip. And so I'm going to lift those up to our Lord right now in prayer. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning and the opportunity to stand in your presence. And we ask you would fill this place with your spirit and transform hearts. God, at this time we bring Vicki Covington's parents, Jean and Yolanda Collings, to you. Jean's in bad health and we're asking for healing and peace for that family. And uh, for the McConnells that are headed overseas, God, we ask for a bountiful harvest that your spirit would have its way in that ministry and that lives and and families would be transformed. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Turn with me, if you would, into your Bible, 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18, we're continuing our series called Summer Trips. And it is our hope that as we have been working through this series that you are seeing that some of the typical things you do over the summer actually present opportunities to teach your family things about God. And so I've had the opportunity to teach and Mike's had the opportunity to teach on a couple of stories from Scripture that likely match things that you and your family are doing over the summer uh, to connect together as a family. And I do. I hope and pray and have been praying for you over the course of this series that your mind is drawn to these kinds of activities and that you're looking for things in your family to use as teachable opportunities, ways to build your faith and the faith of your family more deeply on the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, for uh, as long as I can remember in my Christian walk, mountains have served as an appropriate and useful metaphor for the Christian life. Think of what's involved in climbing a mountain. First, there's a really specific goal, which is to get to the top. And then you have to have a measure of commitment, self-discipline, and and I might even say intestinal fortitude to push yourself past certain elevations and challenges along the hike that obligate you to invest a measure of sweat equity. And probably right there we most clearly see how climbing a mountain is a useful metaphor for understanding the Christian life, that the goal is ultimately to get to heaven and to have self-discipline and commitment along that journey and to apply whatever level of sweat equity is needed to transfer our lives from here through being baptized into Christ to heaven when we're ready to meet our Maker. There are a few mountains in, in Scripture that are really important. There's the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. And, and there's Mount Sinai in Exodus 20 where, where Moses is given the Ten Commandments. And this morning we're going to be talking about Mount Carmel, not to be confused with the highest peak in the state of Louisiana, which is the infamous Mount Driscoll. And right here in the state of Louisiana, we proudly attest that we have a a mountain 535 feet above sea level. And you can find this mountain in Bienville Parish, and you can even scale to the summit sometime this week, should you choose. This morning, I want to draw your attention to 1 Kings chapter 18. 
I want to tell you an important story from the Old Testament. This story is almost like the heavyweight championship of theology or spirituality at the particular time it occurred. You've got sovereign Lord Jehovah God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who has raised up a prophet named Elijah from nowhere. He's a Tishbite from Tishba, and we don't still today have a good sense of exactly where that is or what region or group of people he came from. God raises this man up, one guy to oppose 850 pagan prophets. It's a head-to-head battle of epic seismic proportions. And so I want to take your mind and your attention into 1 Kings chapter 18 where this begins to play out. I'll be reading and I'd like for you to follow along starting in verse 1. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 and then we're going to skip to verse 17. The Bible says this in 1 Kings 18 chapter 1, verse 1. After a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. When Ahab saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And the people said nothing. Let me give you a little bit more background here. God in 1 Kings 17 tells Elijah that he is going to send drought upon the nation of Israel. At this point in time, it's been a little bit more than three years. And Ahab, who's been king during this time, is super ultra frustrated at the guy who brought him the news that there would be drought upon the land. And the guy who brought Ahab the news is the prophet Elijah. And so Elijah brings Ahab this news and then Elijah actually goes into hiding. And God sustains him through a brook and ravens and then a widow. And there's some really cool, unique things happening between Elijah and God in 1 Kings 17. And after a given amount of time, God tells Elijah, go and tell Ahab these things. That rain is going to come back to the land. And so Elijah presents himself to the man who wants to kill him more than any other man on the planet. Because it's Ahab's suspicion that it's Elijah's fault that Israel hasn't had rain for these three years. And what we see right here at the beginning of the story is the way God's people have been behaving under the leadership of Ahab, who's the king in Israel at this time. And the Bible actually records that Ahab is the most evil king at this point of any king that's been king of Israel. And so God's people have followed after a man that has slowly and steadily led them away from Jehovah God and has slowly and steadily influenced them to follow after pagan gods 
and practices. And that's what we pick up and that's what we're reading right here in this section that we've selected in 1 Kings 18. So there's a couple of points worth mentioning about God's people specifically that will help us use hiking trips as teachable moments in our own families. Here's the first thing I want to mention, that in this passage of Scripture, God's people are wavering, and when God's people waver, they are left wanting. When God's people waver, they're left wanting. Here's the truth, church. When we have lives that are not fully and totally committed to being lived for the Lord Jesus Christ, we are not fulfilled. We're not fulfilled. When our lives are not completely committed to be lived for the purposes of Jesus Christ, we are not fulfilled. The people in this story are wavering. As a matter of fact, Elijah says, how long are you going to waver between two opinions? I think for so many of us today, the admonishment is the same. Church, how long are you going to waver and flirt with the culture or flirt with your own flesh and sin? And how long are you going to flirt with following after and fully committing to the Lord God? I'm reminded of the writing and teaching of John the Revelator in Revelation 3.16. He says, So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. And some of us are Sunday morning only Christians. We're here and then we live the rest of the week as though we didn't come here. And we wonder when we look in the mirror why we're not experiencing fulfillment in our lives. Why isn't the nation of Israel at this point blessed by God? It's because God's people are wavering. They're uncommitted. They're lukewarm. And they don't have the relationship with God that would absolutely and completely fulfill them. And that's something Christians have struggled with throughout the history of Christianity. Not only are they wavering and thus left wanting, but God's people in this section of Scripture are absolutely disobedient, and as a result, they're left disturbed. In Exodus chapter 20, I reference the Ten Commandments that Moses was given on Mount Sinai, another really important mountain in Scripture. And one of the first commandments, God says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. And what's the current status of Israel's obedience to that particular command? This is a rhetorical question that should be obvious. They're disobeying. They're disobeying. They've served Baal and they've served Asherah. And as a matter of fact, the king and queen have got these prophets in their court eating at their table. The paganistic influence has almost completely invaded the people of God. They're disobedient, and as a result, what's happened? Drought and famine have begun to affect the land. Now, for us, a couple of days or weeks without rain, based on what our weather's been doing here in northeast Louisiana, wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. And for the first couple of weeks and months, for this region of the world, and for this specific group of people at this time, maybe the the consequences of that famine wouldn't have been particularly significant. But after the first year and the second year and the third year into the fourth year, when all the creeks and streams have dried up and the wells have run dry and the livestock have begun to die and people are ill and unwell as a result of their sin, they begin to experience the cost of their disobedience. 
And I think a lot of us expect that we can live how we want to and God's power will manifest itself in our lives regardless of how we're living. I can spend time doing this or I can watch that or I can be invested here or I can do this specific thing or drink this or take that or smoke this. And then I show up here totally uncommitted and disobedient and assume that God's going to deliver me and deliver my family and rain blessings upon me. I want to tell you, friend, that is what God wants to do in your life. God does want to deliver you and bless you and rain down blessings on your family. But to the degree you are wavering and disobedient, you disallow God from doing what he designed you to have him do in your life. The other thing that we notice with God's people here is that they are silent and less scared. My mind, when I began studying for this message, could not get outside for a long time of the response of the people to God's prophet Elijah. He says in 1 Kings 18, 21, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. If Baal is God, follow Him. But the people said nothing. They don't have anything to say. Now, there are times in Scripture where we see that not saying anything is probably appropriate before an almighty, righteous, just God. If you turn to Job chapter 40 and verse 4, you'd see this kind of silence demonstrated. Job says, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. Job understands that before a worthy, just God... He should have nothing to say and should, in fact, fall down and worship before his creator. But for these people here, their silence is not about worship or obedience. It's simply about avoidance. Now, I think this probably more than the other two points is the plague or illness of Christianity in our culture. It's Christians who are wavering and disobedient, and as a result of their lack of commitment and disobedience, have to keep their mouth shut when issues confront the church that we should absolutely speak up about. But the reason we can't speak up is because we know we have that hidden sin in our life, or we're inconsistent in this area, or we're really not committed to God, and we doubt that God's power is going to manifest itself in us because it hasn't consistently as a result of our lack of commitment and obedience... And so that issue confronts us or our family or our marriage or our children and we stay silent because we're scared. And that's also not the purpose for which you've been created. Scripture clearly teaches that God's given you a spirit of power, not a spirit of fear. You've been designed to be victorious in this life, not defeated. But you mitigate, you you, uh, minimize... The ability God has to drag you out of the mire you put yourself in to the degree you are uncommitted and disobedient. That's the situation with God's people right here in 1 Kings 18. And I dare say that lots of us are in a similar situation in 2015 right here, right now. So what does God do for his people? Let's pick up the story in 1 Kings 18 uh, verse 22. The Bible says this, and bear with me, I'm going to read a little bit here. Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. 
I'll prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. When you call on the name of your God, I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you, and call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given to them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. And at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps maybe he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood began to flow. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They gave to him, they came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two sayas of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering in the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are the God of Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. We saw God's people and some of the problems with God's people in that first passage we read. In this passage, we see God's people contrasted with God's prophet. Here's, here's something that's really important to bear in mind, that God's prophet in 1 Kings 18, which was the prophet Elijah, had a specific purpose, a specific purpose. And Elijah's purpose was to bring praise to God. The prophet's purpose was praise. Have you ever wondered what the purpose of my life is? Why am I here? What, what really did I, did I get put here on this earth to do? The purpose of God's prophet in this passage is also God's purpose for you. It's to bring himself praise, glory, and honor, and to empower you to live your life in such a way that those who are around you also praise, glorify, and honor God. That's it. And here's what I want to tell you, friend. If you are living in the purpose of God for your life, if you're living in the purpose of God for your life, you are strong to the point of being invincible. Let me say that again. If you are living God's purpose in your life, 
which is to bring God praise, glory, and honor, then you will be strong in life almost to the point of being invincible. Can I get a witness out there? So often we're defeated in life because we're not in God's will, and so often we think God's will is this big, complex, secret, difficult-to-decode phenomenon. And it's none of those things. God created you to worship Him, and you will be most satisfied in life when you are most satisfied in God. And in life, if you will dedicate and commit and not waver to following after God and to praising Him and honoring Him in everything that you do, and if you'll be obedient to the teachings of God, then His blessings will be upon you and your praise will well, His praise will well up inside of you such that you cannot contain it and joy and peace and all those incredible things that come from being a Christian that we read about in Scripture will manifest themselves in our lives. But it's because we're not living God's purpose in our lives that we don't experience God's power in our lives. It's because we're not living God's purpose for our lives that we don't experience God's power. There's not one minute of doubt that crosses the prophet's mind in this story. You say, Trent, that's a pretty presumptuous thought. What what is it that allows you to deduce that? Because Elijah has all the people surrounding him get water and pour them on the sacrifice. He knows God is going to do something because he knows he's in God's purpose and plan. That's my challenge to you. I don't know what stormy season you're in. I don't know how long of a drought that you've experienced in your life. But my challenge to you this morning is to really get committed and obedient to bringing God praise and glory and honor. And when you confront that thing in your life, whatever it is, that you'll do what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13. He says this, Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. Catch this. And after you've done everything you can do, when in your own power you've exhausted all resources and you don't know if there's anything more you can do, Paul would say, just stand in that moment. Just stand boldly in God's purpose and watch his power manifest itself in your life. Paul would know the story of Elijah. Paul was a scholar. He would have known, probably have memorized this at a really early age. Probably most Jewish people, especially rabbis, would know this story by heart from an early age. And I have to imagine that there's a piece of Paul's personality as the Spirit is moving him to write this in Ephesians 6 that thinks, man, what about Elijah on Mount Carmel? Man, he, he was suited up, ready for battle But the battle was too big for him. It was 450 pagan prophets and a whole army of people following after paganistic Jezebel and Ahab's leadership. It was impossible. But he suited up. He showed up. He knew he was in God's purpose. And he saw God's power manifest itself. And he never doubted. When all he could do was just stand in God's purpose and wait for God's power, that's exactly what he did. And time and time again, in my life and in Scripture and probably in your life, you've seen that to be true if you've been living in God's purpose, which is to praise, glorify, and honor Him. And if you're not seeing that in your life, then I challenge you, I implore you to relinquish whatever it is in your life that's keeping you off track and move forward. We see God's prophet having a purpose of praise. 
we also see the prayer of the prophet. You know, prayer really is powerful. And I, as those words are coming out of my mouth, I just feel like that is so cliched. You've heard that probably every other day since you became a Christian. I think what happens is we can get so familiar with an idea that it loses its power, doesn't it? Well, I know I've got this malady and that I should pray for it, and I'm trusting God, but are you really? Or I know I've got a wayward son and that God can deliver them, and I'm praying for that person, I'm believing God can do it, but do you really? How many times, because of the battles you're fighting, and probably as a result of your own disobedience, was God's power not manifest in a situation, and the enemy deceived you into thinking that God doesn't hear the prayers of his people? Or that God no longer works through prayer, or that your prayers are just ineffective? Not only is this a story that demonstrates the power of prayer, my mind is usually drawn to Luke chapter 1, verse 13, about the power of prayer. Zechariah husband of Elizabeth, relative of Mary. Mary is the mother of Jesus. Couldn't have children. And an angel in Luke 1.13 comes to him and says, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been heard. And God intends for somebody under the sound of my voice this morning to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if you are committed and you are obedient and you are living in God's purpose, that God hears your prayers. Don't let the enemy deceive you for one moment that they're not getting through. In the name of Jesus, they do. And God's prayer is, in a prayer made to an all-powerful God, is always effective. I'm reminded of the story in Isaiah chapter 37. I want to read this to you. Hezekiah, a great king in the history of the nation of Israel, is about to go to war with an army three times the size of an army he could even imagine trying to fight against. The king that's coming against Hezekiah is a king named Sennacherib, and he's the king of an army of people called the Assyrians. And in Isaiah 37, starting in verse 15, Hezekiah has no option. There's no way he can win. So what does he do? He prays to the Lord, Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule you, the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these peoples in their lands. They have thrown the gods of those people into the fire and destroyed them. For after all, they were not gods, but were only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are the only God. Skipping down to Isaiah chapter 37, verse 36, an angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the army of the Assyrian camp. When the Israelite people got up the next morning, there were all dead bodies. Pretty intense to have your prayers answered by the angel of death coming and killing 185,000 people, is it not? This is our God, the God of love, who's straight doing work on the army of the enemies of God's people. 
And sometimes the truth is God does answer our prayers through fire. Now, I don't know about you, but when I touched a hot flame or a hot stove as a kid, that always hurt. But I always learned a lesson that was more valuable than the pain I felt. Can I get an amen? And sometimes we pray and God answers us by fire and it's not easy for us to see and it's not easy for us to receive that God answers prayer sometimes through pain. But sometimes our best lessons are learned through the pain in life we experience. And sometimes that's exactly where God's power intersects with your problem is in the midst of the pain that you feel. Let's pick up the story right there and talk about God's presence. Verse 38 in 1 Kings 18. I love this verse right here. Listen to this. Then the fire of the Lord fell. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil. It licked up the water also in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. Here's what I want to tell you about God's presence. First, where God's presence is, God's power is there also. And God has said that through Him, impossible things become possible. Jesus said this in Matthew 19, 26. He looks at His disciples and says, With man this is impossible, but with God, what? All things are possible. The Apostle Paul said this in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. When God shows up, when God's presence is at the scene, God's power is there too. We've got to live our lives in such a way that we usher in God's presence every minute of every day. And His promise is that He would be there when we call. Matthew 28.20 Jesus is giving his disciples um, the great commission. And it's his last kind of big teaching for them as they're about to initiate on their ministry. And he says, I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age. Some of you are in the middle of a situation or problem right now that has been so persistent. And it's been such a long drought that the enemy would like for you to believe that God is no longer at your side. And if you'll get committed and if you'll get obedient and if you will pray and and have faith in the power of God's prayer, of a prayer to God, he'll be there with you in that moment. And what's God's plan when he shows up? His plan is always first to purify his people. God's plan is first to purify his people before he puts out the fire. Before he heals the sick, before he raises the dead, it is to purify his people. You look at anything Jesus does or anything God does with his people directly in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, always there's an ulterior motive and God's motive is always to purify his people. That's why sometimes God sends fire. That's why sometimes he allows us to feel the pain and the consequences of our wavering and our lack of obedience because he understands that that's likely the pathway that leads us to the greatest purity. 
Why would a loving God through Elijah tell the Israelites, gather up the prophets of Baal and meet me in the Kishon Valley? Why would a loving God do that? Because God doesn't want to leave any remnant of the poison that was infecting his people after he does his work to purify them. Can I get a witness? God knows if there's anyone left that the infection remains. And some of you are steadily holding on to those things that infect you. And you know what they are, even as these words are coming out of my mouth. You can go right to that area in your mind, and you cannot fool God. You may be able to fool yourself, and you may be able to fool the people around you, but you are not going to fool your Creator. And it's that one area that God has been allowing pain in your life to be experienced time and time and time again because you're unwilling to relinquish and let God purge from your life what God purged from Israel that day when he slaughtered the prophets of Baal. It's that sick, poisonous sin that you're hanging on to that the culture's influencing you to pursue that God's saying, no way, give that to me and let me unleash heaven down on you. And let, 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 let your purpose, thank, yeah, amen. Give that to me and let your purpose be fulfilled. Man, get busy living and stop just living a dead life. God wants to challenge you today to go on a hiking trip up whatever mountain it is you've got to climb to get rid of whatever it is he's calling you to get rid of so you can be perfectly and completely fulfilled in him. We're going to give you a chance to respond after I pray while we sing. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, God, for uh, walking with us and showing us how to walk with you. Help us to purge the sin from our lives by your power and strength. And, And strengthen us, God, please, to not hold anything back, but to put everything on the table and say, God, nothing is worth holding on to that would keep me away from you. We love you. We thank you for this time here today. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.